Kentucky's governor tells us that emergency crews would be going door to door, only in so many places there are no doors. The lead starts right now. The destruction is shocking. The story is heartbreaking. One town almost entirely demolished after tornadoes ripped through eight states and hundreds of miles as the scope of the destruction is only beginning to emerge. Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, now allegedly saying that the National Guard would be on standby on January 6th to protect the pro-Trump people. The potential bombshell of an email on the Capitol riot probe. Plus, winter is coming, ICUs maxing out again, hospitalizations among children reaching record highs. Are we in for another long, cold COVID winter? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with the national lead today. The heartbreaking, unimaginable loss of life and destruction from tornadoes that tore through eight states Friday night. Officials fear the death toll may reach triple digits, but cannot say for sure right now because the damage is just that bad and rescue efforts difficult and ongoing. The governor of Kentucky today got emotional as he confirmed 65 lives lost so far in the bluegrass state alone. 18 are still unidentified um, of the ones that we know. The age, the age range is five months to 86 years and six are younger than 18. Any moment now we expect to hear from Governor Andy Bashir of Kentucky, who also told me this may be the worst tornado event in Kentucky's history. Today, the National Weather Service is surveying the damage of at least 50 reports of tornadoes in Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, and Tennessee. One monster tornado may have cut a path of destruction more than 220 miles long, with most of that route through Kentucky. CNN has crews stretched across this devastated region. We're going to start with Bryn Gingrass in Mayfield, Kentucky. Bryn, how are officials sorting through the scores of people still reported missing nearly three days after the storm? Yeah, you know, Jake, a big thing is the comms in this area, just being able to communicate with one another. So getting cellular towers up, because this is what is people are seeing when they come rolling through here. For the recovery efforts, the governor has actually just started speaking. Let's take a listen to him. More people than that, um, that we've got to identify and and find, um, uh, hopefully safe in Graves County. Again, um, because we have multiple of our towns in rubble, finding uh, the the numbers are going to move uh, a little bit. And we're going to do the best we can to give you the most accurate information we can. Um, yesterday, we received that major declaration with, from the federal government, the fastest in our history. Um, we are very grateful, and, and uh, we've now asked for additional counties to be added, both for public assistance. These are roads and, and, and government buildings and uh, public infrastructure. Uh, that's the public assistance program, as well as individual assistance, people who've lost their homes. The Extra counties that we have asked for on public assistance include Boyle, Breckenridge, Bullitt, Casey, Christian, Edmondson, Grayson, Green, Hardin, Hart, Hickman, Livingston, Logan, Lyon, Marion, Monroe, Ohio, Shelby, Spencer, and Todd. 
Those are the same counties we've asked for the individual assistance as well. That is how widespread uh, the damage from this event is when what I think will be an F4 and F5 tornado touches down and stays on the ground for 200 straight miles in a state with 120 counties. You have this many counties that have damage and this many counties that need help. Our National Guard, um, we have uh, augmented uh, our forces that are that are uh, assisting with recovery. Now, 448 uh, guardsmen in the field. Um, and of those, at least 95 are doing a fatality search and working in these communities to uh, look for um, missing Kentuckians. And, and their search is one where... Um, we hope they don't find them. We hope somebody connects to them and they're out there and we just uh, don't know where they are yet. Maybe they don't have self-service. Uh, 55 guardsmen are providing logistics support to the state logistics support area and three National Guard chaplains are providing uh, spiritual help to soldiers and civilians in the affected communities. Uh, the new requests that we're getting or increased requests are for MPs. That's needed help on the law enforcement side and then on the engineering side as well. Uh, FEMA, just to go over a little bit of their response. Their priorities are to support life-saving and life-sustaining action. They're working with uh, all of us, every level of government in the declared counties. So two FEMA incident management assistance teams have been working with us since Saturday. They are also sending disaster housing experts to work with our teams in the field where we are hit the hardest. Four urban search and rescue teams, including canine detection search teams in towns that, these are cadaver dogs that we never thought that we'd need them in. They're in Mayfield and others to assist in local uh, response. An additional 10-person team is relocating uh, from Frankfurt to Mayfield. An incident support base was established at Fort Campbell to rapidly deploy personnel and supplies and they include 61 generators, 74,000 meals, 135,000 liters of water, cots, blankets, infant toddler kits, pandemic shelter kits. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, te temporary power and critical public facility staff are helping as well. Mobile emergency response support personnel is in Kentucky, including two mobile emergency operation vehicles with emergency communication capabilities, um, staging teams, housing inspectors, Damage assessment and volunteer agency liaison staff are staged and ready to deploy. That means real soon. They're going to be walking around in what were neighborhoods, talking with families, uh, recording the damage, and working on processing their claim, uh, giving them their claim number. Uh, this is, again, the, the fastest we've ever seen. Eight shelters remain open in Kentucky now. Salvation Army is serving meals and, and providing emotional support. I want to talk just a minute about staying safe while you are cleaning up. As you begin cleaning up, take photos, make a list of your damaged property. This is going to be really important for claiming public assistance. You need to document everything you possibly can. Survivors who cannot stay in their homes, um, we are taking in uh, two state parks. I will give the update on, on that. Uh, do not touch power lines. These are these are all things that our people know. Stay safe while you're while you're cleaning up. Uh, 
couple additional points for outside donations for things like food, supplies, etc. If you're doing that for Graves County, the contact is Graves County Emergency Management. That is 270-727-5114. Uh, volunteer sign up. Do we have the website? There you go. Uh, this is from the Graves County Emergency Management. Um, please, if you want to volunteer, go through here. One of the challenges, and it's a wonderful challenge for us to have, is so many people want to help. It's overwhelming um, uh, many of our first responders who need to be out doing other things. This will significantly help. Please be patient. Um, there's a lot of people who, who want to help. Uh, Paducah Police Department has volunteered to accept food and supplies as well to help out Graves County. Their number is 270-444-8590. Uh, physical address, 1400 Broadway, Paducah, Kentucky, 42003. Um, okay, and this one is really important. Again, we are working on verifying the information from the candle factory uh, that right now would only have eight confirmed dead, which is Christmas miracle we, we hope for, but we have to make sure it's accurate. So all of the employees from the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Factory, we need them to go and to check in at His House Ministries Church at 1250 KY303 right there in Mayfield. We just want to see you, make sure you're okay, um, and, uh, and verify that information. I believe the phone number we have now which was wrong earlier, again, we're just doing the best we can on short notice, is 888-880-8620 if your transportation is, uh, is, is unavailable. So if you are an employee of that facility, either go to His House Ministries at 1250 KY303 there in Mayfield or call 888-880-8620. That number is solely for these folks. Don't call trying to find out information on it. We need to know these people are alive and safe. Uh, Kentucky State Police continues doing hundreds of welfare checks along with local law enforcement and working with the chief medical officer to assist with victim identification. Uh, update from our Cabinet of Health and Family Services, Grace County Senior Center. And Western Kentucky Allied Service Building, that's the community action building, have been damaged so extensively, there's no way they can prepare meals for, for seniors. That's how mean um, this weather event was. Uh, but um, also shows how incredible our people are. So we sounded the alarm, and within 20 minutes, over 2,300 shelf-stable meals were committed. These meals are being transported from senior centers in Breckenridge, Nelson, and Fayette counties to 300 homebound seniors in Graves County that are fortunate enough to still have a home by way of community action staff. Further work is underway to secure additional meals. You know, in the midst of this pandemic, we were able to eliminate our uh, our waiting list. Every senior who was hungry, um, we were getting a meal too. And then this comes through and destroys the place that uh, that you prepare them. But Others have stepped up, are helping us um, uh, to provide uh, that service. Kentucky State Pol Parks, we are offering minimum two-week stays to, to those that uh, don't have a place to call their own at the moment. I want to provide room availability as of 1 p.m. today. Kentucky Dam Village, there are still 30 rooms available. 
uh, for families. Ken Lake State Resort Park, 58 rooms available. And we also have hookup outlets that can be used for washers and dryers. And we will accept donations of those to help people out. And the park will accept donations to help the people that, uh, that they are helping out. Uh, the First Lady, in just a little bit, is going to have um, some good news with our state parks where we're going to try to lift up the people staying there. Lake Barkley, we are waiting electricity to be restored. When that happens, we'll open up 56 additional rooms. Uh, but even with the lights uh, uh, not going, the park hosted a blood drive today. So thank you. Barron River uh, has 30 rooms available. John James has one cottage available. Penny Ryle is full. And that's right near Dawson. So that WPA project is where my grandparents met. Then the Rough River Dam State Resort Park, 47 rooms available. Um, again, families who are in need of emergency uh, uh, con uh, housing should contact their local emergency management office to request lodging. But hey, if you show up there and you need help, um, they ought to help you call your local emergency management folks from the park. Um, volunteers are needed at Ken Lake, Kentucky Dam Village, Rough River Dam, and Lake Barkley State Parks. And I know our folks are walk watching. It says walk-ins are not accepted. It's not okay. If somebody walks in, call emergency management with them and work through it. Do not turn anybody away at any of our state parks. Let's work to confirm that they need our help. Make sure that they are in a warm place and that they are fed while it's going on. And we're not going um, to not accept people that need help. Uh, many of our agriculture operations reside in western Kentucky and were impacted by the historic tornadoes that devastated the area. Uh, we're already working uh, with many of them. Um, dead livestock, um, major operations, uh, helping to, 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 to remove the carcasses and, and ultimately provide the support that's necessary. To do that, I've created an agriculture working group. The working group will work with my office, the executive branch, and any other entities deemed necessary. We've been in constant communication with the people in this working group the past 48 hours, and we remain dedicated to addressing the needs of so many farmers in that area. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Michael Dossett uh, for his update, and then we're going to get uh, we're going to get uplifted by the first lady. Going to make sure our kids don't miss out on their Christmas. Thank you, Governor. And again, our hearts and prayers go out to the families of the loved ones lost and those who are still missing. So just a brief update, um, our power picture improved a bit. Uh, we have at this point 2,600, I'm sorry, 26,500. Uh, they're still out of power. Again, uh, managing expectations. Some of the large transmission towers, and these are the ones that you saw during the ice storm of 2009. These are the massive metal structures that carry the transmission lines have buckled. Uh, that will take weeks to months to put back up, but that should not impact the large numbers. So I'll go over very briefly counties with excess over 500 customers outage. Uh, Graves, Callaway, Marshall uh, equal about 14,000. Hopkins, 6,500. Christian, 2,000. Hickman, 1,200. Fulton, uh, 900. Todd, 700. Carlisle, uh, about 700 and uh, Caldwell about the same 700. So we're moving forward 
uh, very quickly. You've obviously seen, if you're in the impact area, you've seen many contractors that are over target assisting in the power restoration. Um, if you don't have power, life is not good and we're doing everything we can. Um, we have approximately uh, 96 or 95% of those lines assessed across the state. Again, 29 transmission lines are down and those are the large ones. Um, we have Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You've been listening to Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, followed by the state's emergency management director, Governor Bashir, giving a heartbreaking update after this weekend's tornadoes. He says that at least 74 Kentuckians, 74 are now reported dead with another 109 unaccounted for. Let's go back to CNN's Bryn Gingrass, who's in Mayfield, Kentucky. And Bryn, you, you were mentioning right before the governor started speaking that, that a reason these unaccounted for numbers are so high is that communications are really spotty in Kentucky right now. Yeah, exactly right, Jake. I mean, we were on the ground here Saturday night. Uh, you know, that's 24 hours after the storm. And there were so many people we were talking to who were just trying to call some of their loved ones around town, particularly in that candle factory where so many people were missing. Uh, and they couldn't. They couldn't get an answer. The phones were dead. And that's continued really for the last couple of days. So getting comms up and running is a major priority uh, for this state so people can just check in. You heard the governor talk about that candle factory and how those numbers got better. Uh, you know, of course, eight people still died, but those numbers improved because they were able to just check in with others, people who made it out safely, and those numbers obviously went down. So that's a big part of this. And then also the Kentucky State Police, they're doing their part going door to door. We've seen a lot of houses what's left of houses with, you know, a C as confirmed, okay, you know, different sort of letterings on the doors uh, to make sure that everyone is accounted for. So it's a massive, massive undertaking, as you can see, as I was showing you before, these are the scenes that uh, all these people who are putting in these efforts are rolling up to just piles of bricks in some cases, particularly here in Mayfield, which was one of the hardest uh, places hit by this storm. And really, Jake, before I let you go, I got to tell you, a lot of this effort is not just from the state. It's really neighbors helping neighbors. We've talked to so many people in this town of Mayfield, and they have just been resilient, trying to help each other, not only right now as we speak, but in minutes after the storm hit. We've talked to so many people who have rescued loved ones who live down the street, who've rescued their neighbor they never met before, but they did that night just trying to help each other. And of course, as you heard the governor speaking, that's continuing as there are fundraising efforts, shelters being open to strangers, so many people coming together to try to make it through this process, which is just, of course, unimaginable right now still for so many. Yeah. Friends Ingress, thank you so much. CNN's Pamela Brown is a proud daughter of Kentucky, also in Mayfield. And Pamela, people... In that area, no tornado outbreaks all too well, but there has not been anything like this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, growing up in Kentucky, very familiar with um, tornadoes, tornado warnings. But speaking to folks here in Mayfield, there is just a sense of of being stunned that when they got the warning uh, that a tornado was coming, they could have never anticipated how violent it was, how much destruction it caused. And of course, the fact that it was in December was highly unusual. But, you know, I want to pick up on what Bryn just said about neighbors helping neighbors. And we have seen so much of that as a Kentuckian, not surprised. There really has been been just this um, heart of of generosity everywhere you turn. So many beautiful stories to be told. But I spoke to one man who was pulled off to help someone uh, with a a flat tire, and he told me that while he's trying to help people right now in the immediate aftermath, his big concern is looking ahead months, years here in Mayfield. 
a lot of these places will just get they just get bulldozed down and flattened and and yeah, there'll just be grass growing here in two years and how does that make you feel oh, it's terrible it's terrible it's it's you know i mean yeah the sense of community everybody's coming together to help but in in a few months you know people won't be here you know the the news crews will be gone and and uh uh, families will there'll just be a bunch of condemned houses, um, and it's it's rough. It's not easy. What do you want to do uh, as a as a member of this community to help in the rebuilding? Well, I'd like to try to, to to come up with housing for everybody so they don't have to leave. And that is really the key here. But I will say it's been really stunning to see how much has been accomplished just since the tornado came through here with just the cleanup, um, putting up power poles to help with that communication issue that Bryn just talked about. And I, I will note, I, I spoke to one resident yesterday who at, the, at that point yesterday had no help. He didn't know where to go. Today I checked in with him. He says he's already been in touch with FEMA for assistance. He's already gotten the medicine that he so desperately needed. So you are seeing progress on that front too. Jake? Pamela, we've seen these, these homes ripped to, to shreds. Uh, FEMA can't be everywhere. How, how are people getting essential items such as medication, food, even basic shelter from the elements? Right, that's right. And and in order to get in touch with FEMA, you have to fill out an online application, which, of course, as we've been talking about, that is not always accessible to people right now. So people can go to the fairgrounds. Um, the local high school here is offering shelter, offering resources. The Kentucky Fund has raised millions of dollars. And in terms of the medication, because that's another issue we've been hearing about from residents who lost their homes, they were concerned about getting the critical medication they need. The Walgreens here is open. The Walmart uh, pharmacy is opening up. Up as well. And so you are seeing more support roll in here to Mayfield and beyond to help these residents that need so much help. All right, Pamela Brown from her home state of Kentucky. Pamela, thank you so much. Let's bring in the Lieutenant Governor of Kentucky, Jacqueline Coleman. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Coleman, you were able to get out and tour damage from these tornadoes again today. Tell us, what did you see? What are you hearing from your constituents? Well, I, I will tell you that I saw a level of devastation that was only rivaled by the compassion um, and love of, of neighbors. It, it was just as stunning and heartbreaking as it is to see homes um, and buildings destroyed and with nothing left. Uh, what brings you hope is, is seeing those neighbors helping neighbors uh, that, that y'all were just talking about. Um, I have to tell you the governor has led with steadfast, swift uh, decision-making and compassion. And thank goodness that uh, he was able to connect with President Biden and the turnaround of the federal government is probably the quickest that, one of the quickest at least that we've ever seen. And so this is what you wanna see when people that you know and love uh, need your help. Lieutenant Governor uh, Coleman, um, Governor Bashir just said at least 109 people in Kentucky are still unaccounted for. Are you hoping that people will still be able to be found alive or has this shifted from a rescue to a recovery mission? Well, um, I, I think part of the Team Kentucky spirit is that you never give up hope. And so we're going to keep hoping and keep working until we can make sure that everyone has been found and identified and every family has some peace. And uh, and that's what we're, that's first and foremost on our list is to wrap our arms around these grieving families uh, and help them to deal with the, the trauma and the loss of life 
uh, as we work together to, to clean and rebuild. And this is going to be a long process, uh, but I want every Kentuckian to know we are in this for the long haul. These tornadoes hit just two weeks before Christmas. One restaurant owner uh, told us that he now has about 30 employees who don't have a place to live. Here's what he told CNN. And I talked to them and, you know, a number of them lost their homes, lost their vehicles, lost their Christmas, you know, what, all kinds of stuff. They don't have shirts on their backs right now, you know, storage buildings just gone. So, I mean, and I know if those 30 people have things, then there's thousands of people in the same boat as them. So your team has noted an outpouring of financial assistance already, more than $4 million donated to the Western Kentucky Relief Fund. What's the plan for how that money will be distributed? Well, what we can, can uh, well, let me first say the, the site that you can go to to donate, which is what we need as much as anything right now. Um, our communities have been inundated with resources and supplies, which we appreciate uh, more, than, more than we can possibly say. Uh, but funds are what we need now to make sure that we can keep boots on the ground. And uh, that website is West, uh, team, WKY, relieffund.ky.gov. And every penny of that is going to people on the ground to help with the cleanup and rebuilding of these communities that have been just just absolutely flattened. And, you know, I hear that gentleman talking about Christmas, and I'm, I know I'm on here as lieutenant governor, but I'm also a mom. And it breaks my heart to think about the kids who are and the families who are going to struggle more than they could have ever anticipated because of something that happened in the blink of an eye. Uh, But I know uh, that our communities will continue to come together and these neighbors will continue to help neighbors because that's what we do. And and let me say, Jake, that this is not just a Kentucky thing. Uh, We're getting help from all across the state, but the outpouring of support that we're getting from across this country is absolutely it leaves me awestruck. And I just want folks to know that we will never forget this. And before your career in politics, um, we know you taught high school. So you're speaking not just as a mom, but also as a former teacher, uh, when you talk about how difficult Christmas is going to be for so many of these, these kids. You're exactly right. And what I'm so grateful for is Kentucky is full of great schools and great people and great schools. And I know I know I know what it means to be a teacher. And I know that these teachers um, are knocking on doors to check on their kids. They're already working to help to uh, gather resources that they know that the kids in their classroom need, because that's what they do. Uh, I just talked with a superintendent in uh, Muhlenberg County yesterday who in the city limits, they have a. Uh, uh, 300 residents. It's a small county, and they the county lost 12 lives, uh, and so the the impact was massive. And the superintendent was talking to me about uh, the decision that they had to make about do we open the doors to get the kids in the building so we can lay eyes on kids and know that they're safe, um, or do you know, or are we even going to be able to do that? And and I know that every decision that's being made in our communities is being made uh, on, on what is in the best interest of our, our fellow Kentuckians, and certainly the schools continue to be the heart of our communities. Kentucky Lieutenant Governor uh, Jacqueline Coleman, thank you so much. Please stay in touch with us. Let us know how we can continue to amplify the voices from Kentucky and bring attention to what you need uh, to recover and rebuild. And Jake, that means so much. Thank you for doing that. 
Today, the Biden administration vowed to bring in emergency workers, food, medical supplies, and temporary shelter to those in need right now. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us, President Biden plans to survey the damage in Kentucky on Wednesday. The devastation is is just stunning. I mean, there's nothing left standing, basically. President Biden will get a firsthand look at the storm's deadly devastation as he travels to Kentucky on Wednesday. With each passing day, the human impact of this devastation is uh, just uh, the depth of the losses are becoming more and more apparent. In the Oval Office today, the president receiving an hour-long briefing from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FEMA Director Deanne Criswell, both of whom surveyed storm damage in western Kentucky on Sunday. I worry, quite frankly, about, how can I say it, the mental health of these people. You come home and you see that if you made it, and if you haven't, if you lost someone in the meantime. You know, thank God it doesn't seem like the numbers are quite as high as we anticipated, but they're high. The federal government racing to provide housing, water, electricity, and communications assistance for Kentucky and parts of five neighboring states that bore the brunt of the rare December tornado that cut a long and brutal path. All these yellow dots here along the way are residences, and they've been wiped out. They've been wiped out. It's the latest test for the Biden administration, with all presidents judged by how they respond to natural disasters and emergencies. While the White House is not linking this particular storm directly to climate change, the president said he has no doubt that recent severe weather events are related to the climate crisis. What is certain, it is one of the worst tornado disasters we've had in the country. And the second thing is certain is that it is unusual. It is unusual how it happened, how many places it touched down, and the length of the path. Now, the president did overnight sign a a disaster declaration for Kentucky. We'll be doing so for Illinois as well. And Jake, he will be traveling to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for a briefing on Wednesday, followed by getting a firsthand look in Mayfield and Dawson Springs in the western part of the Commonwealth. Certainly, this is the latest time that uh, President Biden going to visit a disaster area, but so much need there. And his administration certainly will be tested by this. But as of now, they're getting high marks in the early days. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny at the White House for us. Thank you so much. For ways that you can help tornado victims, CNN is pulling together resources. You can find them at CNN.com slash impact. CNN.com slash impact. Coming up, Donald Trump's chief of staff is asking the select committee investigating the insurrection to cut him some slack just hours before a key vote that could result in him potentially going to jail. Also, new questions about whether a world leader can guide his country through another potentially nasty COVID wave as he's hit with a tidal wave of scandal. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, just a few short hours from now, Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows will almost certainly be one step closer to being held in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify. The January 6th Select Committee is meeting tonight to vote on a contempt referral for Trump's former White House Chief of Staff. This is the committee reveals new evidence about the deadly Capitol attack. And CNN's Jamie Gangel joins us live. And Jamie, what are, what are your sources telling you about what we can expect uh, tonight. I think this is beyond a vote that we're going to get significant new information. Mark Meadows was in the room on January 6th, and the committee has a lot of the receipts. Uh, Jake, a source familiar tells me 
that among the communications and, and texts and emails, the committee is going to simply lay out how much was going on in real time, what Meadows knew, who was speaking to him, uh, Republican loyalists, White House officials, and that we're going to see those actual texts. Let me give you an example of two that are in the 51-page document, but they speak to the kind of thing we're going to hear. So this is a former White House employee to Meadows on January 6th in real time during the riot. You guys have to say something. Even if the president's not willing to put out a statement, you should go to the cameras and say, we condemn this, please stand down. If you don't, people are going to die. Now, the committee in the document did not say who that former White House official is, but we actually know who it is, thanks to Washington Post reporters Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker in their book, I Alone Can Fix It, identified that as Alyssa Farah, who was a former strategic communications director. Another example, uh, we're told that we're going to hear about text exchanges from media personalities. That sounds to me like reporters, maybe some Fox News reporters who are reaching out to Mark Meadows. And I think we will hear tonight about a Trump family member who texts Mark Meadows. And here is the quote from the report. It says, indicating that Mr. Meadows is, quote, pushing hard, end quote, for a statement from President Trump to, quote, condemn this shit, end quote, happening at the Capitol. Uh, At the end of tonight, I think it's going to be very clear that no one can pretend this wasn't a big deal because these are Trump loyalists, Republican members of Congress, Trump administration officials. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, an attempted coup, an attempted overthrow of the government. Um, Why does Meadows seem to be fighting this testimony that they want him to provide so hard, given the fact that he initially volunteered much of this information. Correct. So his lawyer keeps saying it's about executive privilege. It's very hard to argue executive privilege when you're handing these things over. I think there are two things that are pretty clear to the committee. One is that Donald Trump does not want Meadows to testify. It may also be that Meadows, being in the room, may be concerned that instead of saying executive privilege, he may have to take the fifth. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has a book out, right? Correct. He's trying to sell a book. He handed over all this information. He's doing interviews on MAGA media. It's hard to argue that he has been respecting executive privilege himself. Correct. And five people died that day. And he was in the room and he did not. And there were subsequent suicides uh, by police officers so traumatized by what happened. Jamie Gangale, thank you so much. New concern for the kids, why so many children are filling hospitals again in this new COVID surge. Stay with us. In our health lead today, as we head into the winter, coronavirus hospitalizations in the United States are soaring. And in the Midwest, hospitalizations among children with COVID have reached record highs, spurring even more new concerns, as CNN's Alexandra Field now reports. Today, new warnings coming from the UK about the Omicron variant. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming, and I'm afraid it is now clear that two doses of vaccine are simply not enough to give the level of protection 
we all need. A new preliminary study from Oxford University finds that the two-dose regimen of Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines is substantially less effective against Omicron than Delta. But those researchers also say that at this time, there is no evidence Omicron would lead to an increase in severe disease or deaths. So far, the variant has been linked to one death in the UK. The US now reporting Omicron cases in at least 29 states and D.C. If you look at the data, the more and more it becomes clear that if you want to be optimally protected, you really should get a booster. Evidence of the need for boosters only mounting with a winter surge driven by Delta setting in. It's winter. We've been planning for this winter surge since July, but we're prepared and we're trying a lot of different innovative things to flex uh, uh, the um, bed, bed space and whatnot within the hospital system. It's really important that the healthcare system is preserved. The toll hitting the young and old. One out of every 100 seniors in the U.S. has died of COVID-19, according to new federal data. While hospitalizations among children now reaching record highs in the Northeast and parts of the Midwest. This idea that children are not vulnerable at all is not so. Starting tomorrow, children ages 5 to 11 will have to show proof of at least one vaccination to eat indoors in New York City or go to certain venues. A temporary mask mandate for indoor public spaces goes into effect today throughout the state. There are certain states like New Hampshire and Massachusetts where the healthcare systems are beginning to get pressed. And mask mandates are the easiest thing we can do, sort of collective action that puts some downward pressure on spread. The idea of masking up yet again, deeply dividing Americans, still locked in debate over all kinds of COVID mandates. We've proven that mandates work. And now we're up against a new enemy with this new variant. We've got to have a strategy to fight back. To put the mandate in is unprecedented. It's going to cause hardship and it's going to cause division in our country. As of today, the U.S. has reported about 50 million cases of COVID, about a third of those cases coming during last winter's surge. Jake, of course, that was before we had widespread access to vaccines and boosters. All right, Alex Field, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Did the British prime minister commit an unforgivable party foul? Why he's now under attack by his own party. Stay with us. And our world lead backlash against British Prime Minister Boris Johnson due to new COVID restrictions. As CNN's Nina Dos Santos reports, the fallout is coming from Johnson's own political party. The UK's Prime Minister, once riding high among Conservatives, now the target of outrage from all sides. Behind the recent outcry, festive gatherings and this Christmas quiz, hosted by Boris Johnson inside Downing Street, which may have broken Covid rules, limiting socialising last year. Downing Street says the Prime Minister and others attended virtually. I certainly break no rules, but the whole thing will be uh, looked into by... Uh, the, the, the cabinet secretary. First, the government denied parties ever happened until an aide was caught joking about the restrictions on camera in this leaked footage. Now, three events are being investigated. It was a business meeting. It is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Aside from the question of parties, there are bigger issues at play. Johnson's government has been marked by allegations of sleaze, of improper lobbying and of how an upgrade to the Prime Minister's official apartment was financed, which Johnson says he paid for. Trusted lawmakers and advisers have resigned, risking once safe Conservative seats, and the polls have now flipped. The opposition is sensing an opportunity. 
Of course, there's a question of what the conditions should be, but there's also this basic question of trust. Uh, and that is broken with the Prime Minister. Okay. And that's why he is unfit for office. No one should be in any doubt. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. Cues for boosters and with the threat of Omicron, Johnson is back to enacting tougher measures once more. Harder to sell now to a weary public. And growing frustrations in Parliament, where a vote to rebel against the new moves could happen this week. With Westminster about to break for the holidays, the PM's tenure isn't quite at breaking point just yet. But it has lost some of its spark. Well, with Omicron cases now doubling every two to three days across the UK, getting that public health vote through Parliament tomorrow will be crucial for Boris Johnson. But to do so, Jake, he'll have to rely not on the support of his own party, but upon his political rivals. Back to you. All right, Nina Dos Santos in London, thank you so much. It's one of the hardest hit areas of Kentucky, where an estimated 75% of the homes are now gone. The mayor of Dawson Springs will join us live next. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, more than 100 people feared dead after tornadoes ripped through the south and midwestern United States. A pastor whose church collapsed around him will join us live. Plus, CNN is learning that a lawmaker who has criticized voting remotely has now been doing so himself as he quietly battles COVID-19. And leading this hour, a critical move from the January 6th Select Committee in the House of Representatives against Trump's former White House chief of staff. Short time from now, the panel will meet and vote on a criminal contempt of Congress referral for Mark Meadows for refusing to testify. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports for us now, this critical vote comes as the committee is releasing striking new evidence about what Meadows and others did in the hours leading up to the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. For the third time, the January 6th Select Committee is preparing to refer a potential witness for criminal contempt. Tonight, the committee will meet to vote on seeking a contempt of Congress charge against former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who initially showed an interest in cooperating before backing away. If he believed that he had a a privilege to assert, uh, he could have shown up. Uh, He could have said, with respect to this question, here's why I believe it's privileged. Of course, he didn't do any of that. The committee wants to ask Meadows about the 6,000 documents he's already provided them. In their contempt report, they write, Mr. Meadows received text messages and emails regarding apparent efforts to encourage Republican legislators in certain states to send an alternate slate of electors to Congress, a plan which one member of Congress acknowledged was, quote, highly controversial and to which Mr. Meadows responded, I love it. The text exchange is just a small sample of the trove of information the committee believes Meadows can provide more insight into. But the former chief of staff, still loyal to Donald Trump, is resistant letter to the committee ahead of tonight's vote, Meadows' lawyer writes, quote, a referral of a senior presidential aide would also be unwise because it would do great damage to the institution of the presidency as restraint and the application of the statute over time attests. Meadows believes his conduct and conversations are protected by executive privilege. This despite extensively writing about his White House experience in his new book and willingly handing over all that information. 
The fact that he was working in the executive branch does make his situation more complicated than that of Steve Bannon, who now faces contempt of Congress charges, or former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who was in the committee's crosshairs. I'm not convinced that it's a slam dunk that the Justice Department wins just because of Meadows' more complicated relationship. But the committee remains confident that this is the only option they have left, and they are ready to move forward. And the full House could vote on this criminal contempt referral of Mark Meadows as soon as tomorrow night. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Clark, that former Department of Justice official who has been voted out of committee when it comes to a criminal contempt referral, he is still waiting for another deposition opportunity. That's expected to happen as soon as Thursday. Depending on when, what comes out of that, Jake, he too could be voted on by the full House for contempt referral and sent to the Department of Justice. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. Let's discuss. We should know. At 7 o'clock Eastern time, uh, the committee, the January 6th committee, is going to meet to have that vote. And we're also told they're going to provide new information showing the extent uh, of what people in the White House knew at the time. And, and David, CNN's Jamie Gangel reports uh, the White House communications director, Alyssa Farah, who, who now uh, is a commentator on CNN, that she texted Meadows during the attack urging someone from the White House to go to a camera and tell the rioters to stand down. She warned that if they didn't, people are going to die. And, of course, she was right. Yeah, she was right. And I think that was a moment in time, depending on who you were and where you were in the administration or people in the Trump orbit, of choosing whether you were going to just sort of sit by passively and watch events unfold on January 6th, as we all did. I was at home watching it on TV. Or if you were going to try, despite where you had been moments before, to restore order and restore democracy and do your job as an official or as someone in the inner orbit of the president. And, and, and Brendan, uh, you've known uh, Mark Meadows for a long time from when you worked in the House of Representatives and he was a congressman uh, from North uh, Carolina. The more evidence that comes out about what Meadows knew and did and didn't do, all there in black and white, one would think that that would make more House Republicans who have supported the big lie uh, reluctant to stay on that train, I would think. No. It's hard to look at what Mark Meadows is doing, his about face. He went in, he was going to testify, and then decided he wasn't. It's hard to, to not look at that in the context of his, the rollout of his book, mm-hmm. the botched rollout of his book, in which he thought he was going to be flattering the president, but clearly he, he created controversy around when the president had COVID, and the president turned on him. And so Mark Meadows turned. It's very clear this is a, a perfect distillation of how Republicans need, need Donald Trump, and Donald Trump needs them. And Mark Meadows personally probably feels like he's very much tethered to this guy. And if this guy is turning on me, I have nothing. And so he's sticking with him. And I imagine most of House Republicans, likewise, are going to stick with, with Donald Trump and Mark Meadows in this instance. And you'd think the book would be problematic anyway, right? Because there's all this information that are exchanges with the president. Things that, in theory, I guess, would be privileged, uh, privileged correspondence. But because he put it in a book, I guess it's OK. I just don't know how you make that argument legally. I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure someone right. does. Um, that you know, if, if it's in a book and he's profiting from it, then that's that's perfectly fine. But anything else that might you know lend some uh, more information about January sixth? Oh no, that that that's under lock and key. Even if it wasn't between Mark Meadows and the president, consistency has never been his strong point. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, fair. And, and Jamal, uh, uh, let, let's dig in, in, into Meadows' email saying the National Guard would be present, quote, to protect pro-Trump people, not to. I mean, I guess we have to see all the exchanges and, sure. and all the context of everything, but the National Guard would be president to protect pro-Trump people, not to protect Congress, to protect the execution of our constitutional duties, to protect American citizens, but to protect pro-Trump people. 
Here's the biggest challenge with what's happened January 6th. We watched it all on television, right? So people have to now not believe what they saw with their own eyes and then not believe uh, what they say, paper doesn't lie in legal cases, right? Like not believe all the paper that's coming out. And what's happening is we are getting a story that is told that it wasn't just a spontaneous eruption that occurred on January 6th. There was pre-planning that took place. It was, some of it was happening in the White House. Some of it was happening among other members of Congress. We saw it play out on television, and now it seems like the people who are guilty are trying to hide their hands and don't want to tell people what it is. But I think the American people may have thought they knew what happened on January 6th. The committee's job now is to expand that knowledge and to really let them know all the inner workings of what's happening. I don't know that that's going to help any Republicans running for Congress for the rest of the year. And it's certainly not going to help us as a democracy if we don't figure this out. Well, I mean, the point you make, and David, I'd love you to weigh in on this. We already know that, you know, this, the, they were playing with fire. At the very, very least, they were playing with fire. They called for this rally. They got everybody hyped up on lies for months and months and months. Uh, and then those people ran and did what they did uh, after Trump told them that, you know, they had to do the right thing. Um, the question is, was it a coordinated, preplanned assault uh, where Trump and Mark Meadows and others knew what was going on specifically and wanted them to do it? I guess one of the questions I have is, does it does it matter? I mean, isn't what we know already bad enough? Obviously, that would be worse. What we know already is bad enough, Jake. Yeah. It does matter. And that's what this January 6th committee is trying yeah. to find out. Uh, just to spin away from that a little bit for a second, that's what's going on here with Meadows and his unwillingness, apparently now, to testify claiming privilege. It's one thing to say, I don't want to incriminate myself or there's certain things I can't discuss. But it's another thing to say, especially as a former member of Congress, I'm not going to appear before Congress as they try to find out if it was worse. I am a lawyer, and I will just say that even though I haven't read every word of every brief, I will just point out that this is a situation where executive privilege, reasonable minds can debate whether it applies in this or that situation. I don't think reasonable minds, Jake, can, can debate whether it applies to an attempted or a discussed or a, you know, played footseed with self-coup, right. the overturning of a free and fair election. Well, and it also, they're looking in not only January 6th, but before January 6th. Some of Mark Meadows' correspondence with state officials who were trying to set up a new slate of electors to try and to uh, overturn the election, to, to disenfranchise Americans right. who had already cast their vote. So that's another aspect of this, it, it, that it, the run-up. And the foundation that was laid that led up to January 6th that he's currently stonewalling them on. So, and, and, and Brendan, the committee has postponed today's scheduled deposition from Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien. According to a CNN source, we're told he's engaging with the committee. The committee said Stepien supervised the con- conversion of the campaign to stop the steal efforts. There's, there's a lot that he could provide in terms of information about how the Trump campaign became the Trump attempted coup. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of Trump officials see if they can't run out the clock on this committee. Um, And I think that's probably why uh, people are asking for more time. But you can't run out DOJ. And I think that's what Steve Bannon is running into and what Mark Meadows may be running into. This committee, if Republicans take over, will probably end. And so they'll need to wrap up their business. But if you had a a referral to DOJ, that's going to be with you no matter how long the committee lasts. And so I think they need to to make sure that they're keeping an eye on the prize that way. And, and Jamal, I just want to get your uh, thoughts on the fact there's new CNN reporting that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is planning to file and run for re-election in 2022. And sources say she's not ruling out a possibility of staying in, in leadership, uh, which 
theoretically would be House Minority Leader, I guess, if Republicans uh, win. Um, but there are a lot of critics out there who say, as great as they think Pelosi is, it is time for, for new blood, even if that's still old blood. <laughs> well, I like a quote from Nancy, Col- Nancy Pelosi from earlier, which is, if you want to be Speaker, I think you should beat me. <laughs> Have at it. Uh, if she decides to run, I expect that she will win. I don't know that she will do it. I think she has to file and say that she wants to run because she can't be a lame duck. She may, in fact, decide she still wants to hang around Congress and do some things. Maybe be kind of an ex-officio eminence grace, you know, who can, who can kind of help shepherd the caucus along. We'll see. But let's just take it at her word today that she's going to run for office. It sounds like to me like you're a little skeptical, though. I <laughs> Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the tornado destruction and the stories of survival. How a mother saved her two children in a place where 75% of the buildings are simply, quote, gone. Plus, a first, Israel's prime minister making a historic visit. What we know about the big meeting. That's next. In our national lead, at least 88 people are confirmed dead, and that death toll is unfortunately expected to continue rising after tornadoes ripped through the south and midwestern United States over the weekend. Homes have been leveled, families torn apart. The victims are as young as five months old. Today we're also hearing More harrowing stories of survival, such as one mother who grabbed onto her young children as the tornado launched them hundreds of feet from their home, though miraculously, they all survived. CNN's Ed Levandera spoke to the family. He joins us now live from Dawson Springs, Kentucky. And Ed, this is an unbelievable story. And even the mother you spoke to is not sure how they made it out alive. She's still trying to figure it all out. Brianna Glisson's survival, terrifying survival story is like a scene ripped out of The Wizard of Oz. But Glisson and hundreds of others here in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, are also quickly realizing that the worst is yet to come. Can you believe this? Brianna Glisson still hasn't figured out how she and her two children are alive. When I opened my eyes and looked around, I had no idea where I was. None. All I could do was stand up and scream for help and try to find someone to help me and my kids. She's piecing together the memories of the tornado striking her home in Dawson Springs, Kentucky. The only place to hide was in a bed with her four and two-year-old children clutched under her arms. She says that saved her kids' lives. That's when the windows exploded and the roof collapsed on her, crushing her arms. And then after that, in a millisecond, we were no longer in the bed or in our house. We were on the ground all the way over there somewhere. Like on the other side of those cars? Like over this rubble on the ground in mud with absolutely nothing near us. So you you flew from this spot right here? All the way over. Over that rubble over there. So, so this was the area? Yeah. I mean, you're probably close to 200 feet away I think being on the mattress saved us because for the most part of flying through the air, we weren't just flying through the air, we were on the bed. That's one of the most unbelievable things I've ever heard anybody surviving. It's insane. I can't believe that me and my kids are okay. I can't believe that that there's no broken bones on my children. They were all cut and bleeding, but she remembers neighbors helping her into a basement. Thank you so much for helping us. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm a girl's boy. I have a head injury, though. 
I have a head injury. I see. And my face. My arm is broken. I'm glad you're all right. Thank you. I'm Thank you for helping us. That's what we do. Hey, what you doing? With nowhere to live, Brianna, Glisten, and her family are in a motel room. Glisten says her children both have special needs that require her full-time attention, so she isn't working outside of the home. Her mother lives with them, and her job pays the bills. We've been given clothes, we've been given blankets and food, but we have nowhere to go. They told us they don't have home insurance, and the little savings they have is paying for a few nights in this motel. I'm not okay. Like, one minute I'm sitting here and I'm smiling, and one minute I'm bawling my eyes out. We are extremely lucky to be alive because we were flown through the air and that our neighbors passed away right next to us. The Glissons are one of the hundreds of families in Dawson Springs that will struggle to recover. The mayor here says about a third of the city's population of 2,500 lives below the poverty line. There's going to be a lot of them that don't have any insurance. Uh, they live from uh, month to month on a Social Security check or whatever they can get. Getting through this is going to be tough for them. It'll be very tough, very tough. You can see the bruises and scars from the storm all over Brianna Glisson, but the wounds to her life from this tornado cut much deeper. How are you emotionally? I'm tore up. I've lost absolutely everything. I've never lost everything in my life. And so, Jake, now the question becomes for Brianna Glisson and hundreds of neighbors here in Dawson Spring. What happens next, the months ahead? And many people that you talk to here are really questioning whether or not people like the Glissons will even be able to return to this neighborhood. How many people here will be able to rebuild? Even after all the federal assistance comes in and insurance money comes in, the future of this neighborhood very much up and doubt. All right, Ed Lavendera with a remarkable story. Thank you so much. Let's talk now to the mayor of Dawson Springs, Kentucky, uh, Mayor Chris Smiley. Mr. Mayor, thanks for joining us. I know this has been a really tough few days for you and your community, probably the worst any of you have ever seen before. How is your community doing? Well, I'm not, I can't say they're doing good, but uh, we've had the outburst of volunteers and also of outburst of uh, food trucks, we've had clothes, we've had everything taken to the school. We've got more stuff than we can handle right now. We've, we're asking people to hold back on it, wait a week. And uh, we're, if we use some of this stuff up and get it dispersed because we're having trouble organizing it, place organizing uh, it's, uh, it's The lookers on are the ones that's really uh, bothering us a whole lot. If we can keep people out of town, it's just looking around. Even the people on the other side of town, you know, I've seen them and over there looking. They don't need to be overlooking. The only one that needs to be over there is the people that lost houses and the volunteers that are there to help them. Um, I noticed there was a uh, side by side going out through there and water on I mean, That's good. But these people just driving around to look and see what's going on. This is time for it. Uh, there's, this is not the time for it. It's, uh, Governor Bashir says that more than 100 people uh, are still missing across Kentucky. Is everyone in Dawson Springs accounted for? No. How many are, are unaccounted for? I I don't I don't have that number, but I do know they still there's still some on the list. So many people uh, in your town uh, lost their homes. Is is there enough temporary housing for everyone right now? And and after 
that issue, after you address that, where are people supposed to live while their homes are being rebuilt? Well, we are hoping that FEMA comes in here and tries to set up something somewhere. Um, we're a small town as well as also a small area as well. Uh, so it's going to be hard to find a place to put the, the, uh, the, the uh, temporary housing and stuff. Uh, we just have to make do with what we got, but there is, there's no place. Them. I mean, there's no hotel. We don't have a hotel. We don't. We don't have any place for them to go in Dawson right now. We're waiting to see what FEMA comes up with. Uh, we've got uh, 109 at, at uh, Penrose State Park. Don't know how long that's going to last. Uh, some of those have uh, medical issues. Uh, the school we've got, just got a generator hooked up to it, three phase, so that that can come up to a, a warming shelter in, in different aspects on that. Uh, uh, we still have the gymnasium up there. That I don't think they put anything in it yet as far as uh, uh, goods and things. But it's, it, it, I don't know. It's just devastating. Yeah. You, can't, you can't ride through town and look at it. Yeah, we're, we're looking at pictures right now, images of just the utter devastation. Um, President Biden is scheduled to visit Dawson Springs on, on Wednesday when he comes to Kentucky to tour the storm damage. Um, what's your message to him? Well, <clears throat> we've had an outpour of uh, help from different government agencies. I, I still uh, know that there's more to go. And, you know, these, these guys, they can do stuff, but it's going to take some time. And uh, <clears throat> you, just have to, you just have to stay with them and stay on it. And they will eventually, they will come in here and help. I'm talking maybe a week away, but uh, I, I don't know what to say to the president. I mean, he's going to see what it is. He'll know. I mean, he's, there's not any words for it. Mayor Smiley, before I let you go, is everybody in your family okay? Uh, we had, <laughs> excuse me, I had a sister-in-law on the other side of town. Her house is completely gone, and we went over there, of course, in the pouring rain, and my wife, Went up there and found her in a closet, uh, and uh, we got her back and brought her over on the uh, south side of town where that wasn't hit by the uh, tornado. And uh, but uh, other than that, and I have an aunt out on Oak Heights, and she's all right. But uh, we we had nobody. Her house is messed up, but as far as uh, injuries or anything in our family, we had none. Dawson Springs Mayor Chris Smiley, please stay in touch with us. Let us know how we can help. We will continue. Uh, to send viewers who want to give money uh, to the various charitable organizations. They can go to cnn.com slash impact for more information on that. God bless you, Mayor Smiley. Thank you. This afternoon, the Biden administration announced it has opened a federal investigation into the collapse of an Amazon warehouse in Illinois. At least six people died when a tornado caused that building to partially collapse. CNN's Polo Sandoval is outside of that warehouse in Edwardsville, Illinois. And Polo, what do we know about this investigation and another one being done by the state of Illinois? Well, Jake, you're referring to what uh, Illinois Governor uh, J.B. Pritzker announced earlier today, that local authorities will actually be looking into what happened here on, on, on Friday night. The governor here saying that uh, the natural disasters, they may not be able to be prevented, but uh, tragedies of this magnitude certainly can. And just for our viewers, here's some background of what took place on Friday. As you see some of those images from the last uh, several days, it was an EF3 tornado, according to authorities, the part of this uh, tornado outbreak from Friday, that almost seemed to have zeroed in on this Amazon shipping facility 
facility and basically cut through it, that caused these large concrete walls to come crashing down, killing six people inside. Uh, now, there were some Amazon executives, about two of them, that actually spoke alongside the governor today that maintained that this building, uh, not only was it built up to code, but the night of these storms, that they followed all those appropriate procedures to make sure that all 46 people who were inside, all employees who were inside, uh, could remain safe. And that included using bullhorns to make sure that those employees can head to what's being described as a shelter-in-place location in the interior of the building. But those Amazon executives also making it very clear that that was not meant to serve as a storm shelter. In fact, this building, because of flooding concerns, uh, does not have a basement. And technically, it's not required to, according to building codes. And that's what we heard today from state officials, is perhaps this is certainly an opportunity uh, to revisit those building codes and perhaps make changes in the future. And then, of course, you mentioned that federal investigation from OSHA that is also ongoing right now. In fact, OSHA representatives have been on site here since Saturday as the cleanup of the debris continued. And ultimately, they're the ones that are going to decide whether or not the, there could be some citations here or some monetary penalties that could be uh, considered here. That's if any potential workplace violations are discovered. But in the meantime, though, Jake, as we send things back to you, the families of those six, fa those six people who clocked in here on Friday night and never made it home, they're still trying to make sense of this all. Paula Sandoval in Edwardsville, Illinois. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a survivor of the tornadoes will join us live in a city that's been largely leveled by the storms. Stay with us. Kentucky, where the largest tornado is believed to have leveled much of the city. Let's get right to CNN's Boris Sanchez, live for us in Mayfield, Kentucky. And Boris, today, uh, Governor Bashir said more than 1,000 residents lost their homes in the tornado. W tell us about the cleanup, ep cleanup efforts what that you're seeing. Jake, it is a massive effort. Just getting into the town of Mayfield is an endeavor because there are hundreds, if not thousands, of workers streaming into this small town of only about 10,000 people. There is heavy machinery and equipment everywhere. You can hear drilling just about in every corner of the city. And the devastation is so widespread. There is rubble and debris in every direction, about as far as the eye can see. It is going to be an onerous and difficult process, but one that the residents of this town tell me that they are committed to, Jake. The survivors that you've spoken with, um, t tell us what they're telling you. Uh, most of them are, are they, they have a bittersweet feeling. They are lucky to be alive and they recognize that, but many of them have lost everything. I spoke to one woman named Janet Kemp who told me that she huddled with her son in a hallway as the tornado tore the walls of her home out and threw them into the air. She said that while she was down there with her son, all she could do was pray and hope for the best. She says that she's heartbroken, not just because she lost everything, but because of what she's seeing around her hometown. Here's more of what she shared with me. My house is completely destroyed. I, I, it's just really hard. I try not to think about it right now. Right now, all I'm thinking about is getting everything out of my house that I can and uh, finding a place to live again. It really hurts because I love Mayfield. It's a wonderful town to live in. I've been here my whole life. Like I said, I was born here. And I wouldn't live anywhere else. So I'm going to stay here and start again. And despite the fact that Janet says she's lost everything that she's worked so hard for, including a, a car that her dad purchased for her, she says that she believes that the prayers that she was 
casting into the sky as that tornado was ripping through her home. She feels like those prayers were answered, Jake. Boris mm-hmm. Sanchez, thanks so much. Another Mayfield survivor is Reverend Joey Reed of the First United Methodist Church in Mayfield, Kentucky. He wrote out the storm in the church basement closet only to discover much of the church had been destroyed. Reverend Joey Reed joins us now live. Um, Reverend, uh, you left your house before the storm hit to take shelter at the church. Tell us what happened after that. Uh, We got to the church and uh, found ourselves in the basement. And according to the safety plan, we should have been in a hallway in that basement. And if we had stayed in that hallway, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. We ended up in a classroom and a closet uh, in that classroom, actually riding out the storm and uh, waiting for the tornado to go past. So large parts of your sanctuary are now gone, which we can see uh, in photographs we're showing. How long do you think it's going to take to rebuild your church? It, it will be years. Uh, my experience with uh, natural disasters and damage of this magnitude indicates that we're going to be a long time rebuilding. We're going to have to find some temporary normal until we can do that. So, Reverend, you're a great guest for me to have today because one of the things I wonder is what do people like you, faith leaders, religious leaders, what do you tell people when they say, why? Why, Reverend? Days before Christmas, why would this happen? Well, I told a congregation in a service just yesterday that God's not in the tornado directing business. This wasn't something that God set upon Mayfield. This is something that happened to Mayfield. And what's going to be an indicator of God's presence is what happens afterwards. We often teach in the church that suffering is sort of a crucible for discipleship. And we're going to be pivoting people from this suffering to servant leadership here in the community. And it's not that hard here in Mayfield because there are so many people who want to help. And as we move people from their own difficulties and they start helping other people, they focus less on their own sadness and sorrow and they focus more on helping their neighbor. And that's what it's all about. And, and what do your congregants tell you uh, in response to that? What, what have you been hearing from them as you, as you have these conversations? Well, we had people who were moving into action immediately. Uh, when we realized after the storm that our family car had been buried under the north wall of the sanctuary, I needed a ride. So I reached out to one of my members, and uh, John Marshall and Marilyn Marshall came running in the middle of the night after a major tornado to to fetch us and bring us back to the parsonage. I walked into the service of worship yesterday morning without a car, with no electricity and no water, and I walked out with a a set of car keys from one of my members who said, I just cleaned everything out and put a fresh tank of gas in, and I'm going home to a generator. So this this is the way that they step up. And my job is to start pointing them in other directions now, to help them find the neighbors who have the greatest need. I'm very grateful, but I wanted them to start moving into their own neighborhoods and helping out. So local and federal governments are are obviously working hard to make sure everyone who's been affected by this have the resources they need. What is your biggest need right now? Uh, Our biggest need, uh, our district disaster relief coordinator, Bill Carr, is on site. He's moving through Mayfield and helping people to find the things that they need most. He's a boots-on-the-ground kind of guy, and he's moving rubble and debris and helping people to, to get their, their, their household in order, at least finding the things that they need to get out of that house. We also have the Reverend Robert Craig, who is our uh, conference director of, of disaster relief, and he interfaces with FEMA. What we're finding out in these early days is that the thing that we need most is cash. 
there are things that we need to, to purchase, diesel for the heavy equipment, food for the volunteers. We're trying to make these things happen and we're trying to make them happen very quickly. And there's been an outpouring. Our online portal at mayfieldfirst.com has, has received countless gifts and we are so grateful. It's allowed us to move very quickly into the recovery, well, into the relief phase. And we're, we're finding out that the recovery is going to take years. It won't start for almost two years, according to the people that I'm talking to. So as FEMA moves in and they, they help with the short term, uh, we know that the United Methodist Committee on Relief is going to be here for the long term. They just left uh, the, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina a few years ago, 2015 or 16, if I remember correctly. We're in this for the long haul, and UM, United Methodist Committee on Relief will be here for that long haul alongside the local United Methodist churches. Reverend Joey Reed, thank you so much, and please stay in touch with us. Let us know how we can help, especially when it comes to shining a light on needs you have uh, if the state and federal government are not meeting them. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We have a very sad update to share. A Kentucky family confirming to CNN just moments ago that two-month-old Oakland Coon died this morning. Her grandmother's home was in the tornado's path in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, Oakland's grandmother telling CNN, quote, we didn't have much time with her, but we loved the time we got to spend with her. May her memory and the memory of the dozens of other tornado victims be a blessing. For ways that you can help tornado victims, CNN is pulling together resources. You can find them at CNN.com impact. We'll be right back. In our world lead, history being made in the Middle East. For the first time ever, an Israeli prime minister made an official visit to the United Arab Emirates. Earlier today, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met with Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. CNN's Sam Kiley is live for us in Abu Dhabi. Sam, walk us through what happened during Prime Minister Bennett's visit today. Well, remarkable idea that uh, 15 months ago would have been inconceivable because Israelis were banned from this country. And indeed, Jake, you couldn't show Israel on a school map. That has all changed. Uh, We've seen the Abraham Accord signed under the Trump administration, culminating ultimately in this diplomatic breakthrough with a government visit from the head of the Israeli government, greeted with an honor guard here in Abu Dhabi, a four-hour session, including a two-hour lunch, two hours extra time effectively with the uh, crown prince, who's the most powerful figure here in the United Arab Emirates for the Israeli prime minister. A very significant move indeed for the Israelis, perhaps a little less important for the Emiratis, but nonetheless, both sides, both parties to this meeting, very much aware that this was an historic moment, Jake. And how did Iran respond today to the, the meeting of these two leaders? Predictably, with very aggressive condemnation, saying that uh, it was, in a sense, uh, disgusting that uh, the Israelis should be entertained, blaming the Israelis for the instability that has uh, dogged the Middle East for the last 70 years. A very predictable uh, statement coming from the Iranians with regard to Israel. Less predictable, really, with their attitude to the Emirates, because it's the Emirates who are out of step with Israel and the United States in wanting to reach rapprochement with Tehran by uh, reaching out diplomatically, having some trade uh, begin to boost, to rejecting recent American suggestions of tightening sanctions against Tehran in order to get the Iranians back on track with their, uh, or at least suspending their nuclear program, getting them back to the uh, nuclear agreement that uh, the Trump administration 
tore up Jake. Uh, so interesting, though, that just the mere presence of an Israeli leader here uh, on the edge of the Persian Gulf uh, so enraged Tehran. The Abraham Accords, obviously a significant achievement by the, by the previous administration. Can increased cooperation between Israel and the UAE help with more peace in the region between uh, other countries? That's certainly the intention of the Israelis. Indeed, Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, made just that point, saying that this would be, uh, he hoped, a prologue to more peace with other nations. Now, of course, this is a country that has never been at war with Israel. A long way to travel, say, with a country like Lebanon. All right, Sam Kiley in Abu Dhabi, thank you so much. Coming up next, the trial of the former officer who shot and killed Dante Wright during a traffic stop, what the medical examiner said on the stand today. Stay with us. And back now with our national lead. Testimony continued in the trial of a former Minnesota police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright during a traffic stop in April. CNN's Adrian Broadus is outside the courthouse in Minneapolis. And Adrian, the, the medical examiner, you say, was one of the main witnesses today. What was the focus of his testimony? Jake, he was significant. The medical examiner here in Hennepin County talked about Dante Wright's injuries, primarily the significant damage done to Wright's heart. Listen in. Far and away, the gunshot wound to the chest was the most significant injury. Was this gunshot wound, the injuries that you observed through the heart and the lungs, was that a survivable injury? Uh, as a forensic pathologist, I would say no. How long does it take for someone to die after being shot through the lungs and heart like this? Injuries like this, we, we refer to survival times in, in terms of seconds to minutes in these types of injuries. He also, he also testified the cause of death was one shot to the chest and the manner of death was homicide. And when he asked, was asked about what homicide means, he said, death at the hands of another. Jake? Adrian, what, what else did we learn today about the shooting and the former officer's claim that she meant to, to use her taser, not her gun? We heard a lot about policy and protocol when it comes to TASER. We heard from multiple representatives with the BCA, and that is the lead investigative arm here in the state of Minnesota. Many of them talked about the differences between a TASER and a gun. For example, the color and what happens when a TASER is activated and the weight. Uh, the BCA agent testifying that the weight of a firearm is heavier than the weight of a TASER. And we know, Jake, that's been a big question. How did Officer Potter mistake her taser for the gun? Back to you. Adrian Broaddus in Minneapolis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our sports lead, USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee have reached a $380 million settlement with the hundreds of victims of former Team USA Dr. Larry Nasser. a number of those young gymnasts have testified in front of Congress, saying their abuse complaints were mishandled by USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee, as well as by the FBI. And the gymnast's lead attorney says they are calling for further criminal prosecution. Nasser is currently serving multiple decades-long prison sentences for sexual abuse and child pornography charges. Coming up, Peloton races to reframe the conversation after their exercise bike made an unfortunate cameo on television. Stay with us. 
In our money lead, the new Sex and the City reboot is shocking fans of the series and Peloton investors, the company experiencing a big drop in its share price after the death of an essential character. Spoiler alert now. Spoiler alert. Moments after riding one of Peloton's stationary bikes, the character Mr. Big suffers a fatal heart attack. That surprising twist in the very first episode of the reboot sent the company's stock, Peloton stock, plunging more than 11% Friday after its HBO Max premiere. HBO Max, like CNN, is part of Warner Media. we should note. The good news for Peloton is that it recovered much of that loss today following the release of a new ad in which the company attempts to reclaim the narrative. You look great. Well, I feel great. Should we take another ride? Life's too short not to. A voiceover in the commercial goes on to tell viewers the many health benefits of cycling and implies that Big is still alive. Well, at least in Peloton apps. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at the Lead CNN. If you ever miss the lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door to us in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.